Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you see in your bulletins, I'm Seth Starkey. I'm the campus minister with the Former University Fellowship at Bell Haven. Uh, yeah. I'm glad I get to do this twice today. Somebody was just asking me a couple of days ago, do you like doing the same thing twice? And normally not, but you know, the 8 o'clock service, I think between the cold weather and the early hour, my brain just didn't work this morning. And uh, I did way too much talking and not enough preaching. So I I'm going to try to shorten it up and do a little preaching at this service today. But turn with me to 1 John, not chapter 5 is in the bulletins. This is probably my fault with numbers. But 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. And let me pray for us as you turn there. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts Together, O oh Lord, be pleasing in your sight. Thou who art our Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, beginning of verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here ends the reading of God's holy word to his name. Be praise and glory. Amen. John does something interesting here. He, he begins with statements of truth. He begins by laying out his credentials, but he also says there in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so you hear the word joy and you would think this is going to be a lovely letter. This is going to be a sentimental letter. This will be an encouraging letter. There will be some attaboys involved. There will be a lot of, hey, you're doing good. Keep it up. And there's some of that. But Three verses away from him saying, I write this so that joy may be complete, he goes and calls people liars. And for the rest of this book, he just comes hard and points out all these inconsistencies and all these problems within the church, their doctrine, their lifestyle. And so I want us to acknowledge that tension as we look at the passage this morning. For him, joy being completed meant very much that we need to know what the truth is and how to live based on that truth. For him, that was okay. And if he had to say hard things to get there, he was going to do it. We're bad at that. We're not good at hard things. We're not good at nuance. And when I say we, maybe me, I'm not good at nuance. In the, in the first service, none of my students were here. I could fudge a little bit, but I can't because I have students here. Y'all, it took my wife saying to me uh, almost nine years ago, hey, you know not everybody played football, right? You, you know not everybody can communicate the way you communicate, right? That was a newsflash for me. I thought everybody had been yelled at as a form of affirmation and encouragement before. <laughs> it was a newsflash for me. 
But we, we really don't like plain dealing with people. We really, as a people, if we would stop and think about it interpersonally, there's just a lot of gray area and there's a lot, especially in the South, there's just a lot of, I'm going to make nice as much as I can, as often as I can, because I don't want to have a confrontation right here. And a lot of people say they're good at conflict. Nobody's good at conflict. Some people do it because they have to, but nobody's good at conflict. It goes against our fallen nature. But we have to do conflict sometimes, and sometimes the truth hurts. Y'all, it's why I speak for myself and probably several people. It's why I don't go to the doctor, okay? Because, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, or I'm going to deal with the elephant in the room. Y'all, I know I need to lose about 75 pounds. I know that if I don't, I'm going to have cholesterol issues, blood pressure issues, and eventually diabetes. I know that. But I won't go to the doctor. Why? Because he's going to tell me that. <laughs> See, when, when I reason it, I, I can get out of it or I can move on about my day and I can go, well, you know, another day. But he's going to print out a piece of paper and go, yeah, we did blood work. And if you see here, and he's going to underline stuff, and he's going to be smiling when he says, it. you're going to drop dead before you're 50. And so I don't go to the doctor because he's going to tell me what I already know. And at that moment, I'm going to be forced with, am I going to live in light of this truth he has presented? Or am I going to do whatever I want? Am I going to live in light of this truth he's presented, or am I going to do what I want? That's what John is doing in this passage here for us. He says very declaratively in, the, in verse 5, and it'll be our first point, but he shows us the truth. We can't get around it. There's no way to nuance it. He says, this is who God is. And then he calls out our inconsistency and tells us how we've been living wrong and how to live right. A simple idea in this sermon. Being reminded of who God is answers the question for us of how we're supposed to live in return. Being reminded of who God is answers the question for us of how we're supposed to live. Uh, it was three points this morning at 8 o'clock. It's going to be two points in this sermon. In the first place, simply, who is God? And in the second place, who are we? Who is God and who are we? In the first place, who is God? It says that we have heard from him and proclaimed this to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. An interesting statement. And I want us to all talk this, a little bit this morning. I said I didn't want to talk. I want us to pr I'm going to preach and you listen a little bit this morning. Here's what every one of us do in the church by default. And, and it changes, so it's not always the same. But at any given point in time, you are more fascinated or infatuated and therefore study and rest in either God's transcendence, His greatness, His otherness, His inknowability, His unknowability, or you really rest in His nearness, His eminence, His closeness, the fact that He does call us by name, the fact that He has revealed Himself to us. And in the Christian life, we constantly go back and forth between, well, which side of the coin do we like? Which side of the coin are we going to major on? Which side of the coin is going to drive our understanding of who God is? But John coming on the scene here and saying God is light forces us to take God at who he is all the way around. The statement that he is light certainly is a statement that he is splendor, that he is glory. It's certainly a statement that you think of Revelation, it says there won't need to be sun because the light will be so bright coming from God himself. None of us can claim that we'll be able to do that one day. And so we know, okay, he's not like us. We're not dealing with just another one of us. 
That's what John is saying when he says God is light. He certainly means that God is light is an ethical statement. It's a theological statement that God is pure. He is holy. He is unblemished, not defiled at all, never sinned, never thought about sinning. And so he comes and says, God is a God who is a consuming fire and he is to be feared. But in saying that God is light, he also comes to us and says, God is a God who has condescended in such a way that we can see him and know him. That God is a God who very much wants to dwell among his people. That they would have intimate knowledge of him and he, they. God is a God who does not want to be concealed. That, Paul used that word mystery so much in his writings, particularly in Ephesians. And what he's saying is in Christ, that mystery is falling away. And we see more clearly with our eyes what God has been up to since before time. That God is light means we can know him and he knows us. That God is light means this. He knows the truth about us. The, the whole truth. Not the truth we tell, the truth that is. God is all of these things. It also says in here that there is no darkness in him. And it's interesting that it would be compared to darkness. And while Satan is not necessarily or technically God's adversary because it's not actually a war that Satan can win. He certainly is adversary in the sense of it was promised that the seed of the serpent would try to destroy the seed of the woman. It was promised that Satan would constantly try to attack the church, but it said the gates of hell will never overcome it. And so this verse tells us who God is and what he's not. But it tells us God is light. And when we see this passage, I want us to stop and just for a moment reflect. I want you to act like you just went to the doctor and he pulled that sheet up with your blood work and he's underlining and he's showing you and he's circling. And I want you to stop and go, is my view of God this one? Do I believe that he's perfect and yet a friend of sinners? Do I believe that he's all-knowing and yet he stops and takes the time to hear my small and sometimes seemingly petty request? Do I believe that he is greater than all things, capable of all things? And yet do I believe... Isaiah's description that a bruised reed he will not break. Do you believe that he is both? That the thrice holy God is the friend of sinners? And before we move on to what we're going to spend the majority of our time in, we have to get this right. We have to look at this passage and say, we all have our inclinations. We all have our leanings. For, for me, when I'm tired, uh, you know, three kids now, nine o'clock for large group used to be very easy for me. We only had one kid when we moved here, and I could just go. Nine, nine o'clock was fine. Y'all, nine o'clock large group now, it, I got to drink two coat zeros and like pound them before I walk in. I, it is rough now. So when I'm tired, here's what I forget to do. When I'm tired, I'm all eminence. I'm all nearness. I'm all grace. When I'm tired, I might forget there were commands there. <laughs> when I'm tired, I might just skip what we're supposed to do and go, but look what Jesus has done. Why? Because that's been what's the most comforting to me as a Christian. I've got a friend, though, when he's tired, he is grumpy behind the pulpit. 
I mean, he, he starts quoting Greek and Hebrew and, and he starts using big words and he starts getting fiery. I think he growls every once in a while. Like, you know, and, and he will tell you every imperative, every command in that passage. But he'll be driving home and go, oh, I didn't say a word about Jesus. You see, we, we all have that angle we come towards God. We all view him through our fallen lens. And what I'm saying is I just want you to stop and think for a minute and recognize how did I walk in this room viewing God this morning? The answer is it has to be both. And, and that's going to be played out here in a minute because the cross combines the two. <laughs> but just know that. That God is both one who we are completely safe with, but he's also the one that it says it's a dangerous, it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a reason why uh, when, when in the New Testament the angels came and they said, fear not, they were terrified. Why? They should have been. <laughs> and so let's just, as we move down the road on this sermon, if you take notes, write it down and go for later discussion. Who do I think God is? But light. Light's the best word. Light's an amazing word that we start with this morning. The second place then. Who were we? And buddy, as you might imagine, this gets real complicated. Because we're a lot of things. I would divide this second point in two subheadings, which at 8 o'clock were, were two main headings. And it's namely this. We are a people who in our flesh are capable of all kinds of crazy things. We are people who in our flesh are prone to be self-deceived. We are people in our flesh who don't know how to think about sin in our lives. We are the people in our flesh who don't know what sin means with our relationship to God. And we see that so clearly if you look at verses 6, 8, and 10. And let me say before we go on this morning, I'm not worried about your theology proper this morning. I'm not worried about if I passed out sheets of paper and told you to give me right answers based on this passage of whether or not you would get it right. I'm going to affirm and say that you all would have good enough theology, even if you've just come off the street, you all would probably have good enough theology or instincts or common sense that properly you could answer all these right questions. That's not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about is that we, when we look at how we actually practice our Christianity, when we look at how we view our role as disciples, that's where the problem comes in, is our inconsistency. And so let me say, I'm well aware that I'm not coming and bringing forth new theological treatises to fix error, per se. No, I'm dealing with boots on the ground. I want to know how we're actually living in light of this. And so, none of you would come up to me and say, you know, I have fellowship with God, but I also walk in darkness. None of you would do that to me. You wouldn't do that to Pastor L. But here's what was happening when, first, when John wrote 1 John. There were people who were saying, look, I'm not denying that I'm a sinner. I'm not denying that it sins very much a part of who I am. What I'm saying is, it doesn't matter. I'm saying that I can have my cake and eat it too. I'm saying that God doesn't care. I'm saying that I've got enough right answers that intellectually I've moved to a place that God's just going to accept me. And what I live out, my actions, he's not concerned with that. So these people would say sin is not divisive. 
These people would say, sin does not make me guilty. They would say, sin does not make me estranged from God or estranged from my friends, my family, from humanity. They weren't concerned about that. They were Gnostics, and so they said the body is of no importance. All we care about is if we think rightly. Again, I don't think any of us are guilty of that, but how about this? How many of us at different times throughout our life, how many of us sitting in this room today just think that there's this whole life we can live that nobody knows about, and until they find out, it doesn't matter? I mean, if you actually knew the people you were sitting by on the pew this morning, we'd all leave a little bit more room between each other. No, no, we all would, really, and you wouldn't let me come in here. Because our default setting is it's just safer to hide. And it's our default setting because of the fall. And it's our default setting because for some strange reason, that's the environment the church has created. I think probably every conservative denomination. Is that we just don't know what to think of the inner struggles we have. And so what we do is we go, you know what? I'm going to put all my energy on making sure that I've mortified just enough sins that nobody's going to catch on. But the things that I can hide and make peace with, I'm going to do it. Here's a problem with that. At first we think I can do this and get by with it because my friends won't notice or my pastors won't notice. But eventually what we do is we go, I can get by with this because God doesn't notice. Once again, crazy, right? You can't hide anything from God. And yet there have been times in my life and recently where I find myself sitting around going, you know, I'm just not ready to talk to God about this shit. I'm not ready for him to know. And in my own subconscious, I'll be like, wait, <laughs> that's not how this works. But we do that. And again, y'all, it's because we do believe in justification by faith. It's because we do understand that, getting to my next point, it's because we do understand that in Christ we're not guilty. That in Christ we have moved from the courtroom into the family room. So, so we believe all that's true, but what happens is we go too far and think, well, I'm safe and so I'm just going to hide my sin. I'm safe and so I'm just going to come up with an arrangement where I can keep my sin and at the same time say I have fellowship with God. And y'all, we might get by with it, but not without it eating us up inside. It's destroying us. It's destroying you. But again, it's tricky, is it not? Because we don't want anybody to see our bad side. We only want our best foot forward. We don't want people to think that we're dysfunctional. That we're addicts. Oh, I don't mean the addictions we have titles for and treatment for. And so we do what in our flesh can be our default setting and we just hide. So much so that we think and live and act absurdly as, you know, I'm going to keep walking in darkness and have fellowship. And I'm going to tell myself enough times it's true until I believe it. Could that be us this morning? The answer is yes. And the answer is in some place in our hearts, that is where we are this morning. We've forgotten that sin that dwells in the believer, again, though not severing us from the love of God, is certainly doing great harm to our fellowship with him. Which is why it says what it says. None of us want to be liars. 
And I'll, I'll even be generous and say none of us started down this road thinking that's what we would become. We just simply haven't known how to handle our sin. We haven't known how to think about it. And so in this instance, we've said it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Then there's the other side of the coin, and this is a, a different issue in verse 8. This is where the Flannery O'Connor quote, so profound, comes in. If you want to avoid Jesus, avoid sin. And this person in verse 8, what they do is they say, uh, sin's awful. Sin messes everything up. I'm just not guilty of it. Uh, you know, in seminary and growing up, you hear that there are Christians who think perfection in this life is possible. I had never met one, though, and so I kind of thought, well, my seminary professors are stating a case, but surely nobody still believes this. Until I was at Bellhaven for about a year, and a student sits down with me in a one-on-one, and, and I said, how you been doing, you know, small talking? I'm great. I haven't sinned in three months. Now, I laughed. I mean, I had a, a relieving, I mean, I, just, I la- chuckled. I was like, oh, this guy's going to joke with me. Awesome. Because he'd been kind of standoffish before. He wasn't joking. He was not joking. Why? He had found every external way to keep the law perfectly. Yeah, sin's awful. I'm just, I just don't have a problem with it. Now, he was more brazen than us, right? Or we wouldn't be here. But here's what we do. You know, I, I read my Bible four times a year. I don't know what these people are talking about with a yearly reading plan. If they were real Christians, they could read it four times a year. Or, you, you know, sometimes I go to the 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock service, and I just don't feel like I got the sermon down enough at 8 o'clock. Or I, I can't believe they canceled evening worship. I, you know, whatever it is. We do these beautiful things that are meant to be uh, responses of loving obedience because of what God has done for us. But somewhere along the way, once again, we didn't know how to process the sin that dwells in us. And so we said, I got it. Externally, I'm going to do all the right things. And I'm going to do it until I forget I'm a sinner. Now, let me say something to you. If you're in the first boat where you have all these sin issues, you just don't realize the impact of them, um, you can't live in a conservative church long because people are going to notice if you're mistreating your wife or people are going to notice if you have an alcohol addiction or people are going to notice if you were indicted in the federal court for not filing tax returns, so on and so forth. These sins that we love to pick on and call out, these sins that we're all clear are just awful and scandalous, those are going to be found out. This second category of person, here's what's scary. You can be a self-righteous Pharisee and live in this church as long as you want. Why? Because we don't know how to ask those questions. We don't know how to ask people why they show up early every week. You know, I I learned quickly that people that volunteer for everything, I usually have a one-on-one with them quick. Because 50% of the time, they don't understand the gospel. And so they're trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. But to no peace. It just got quiet in here. But I just want to acknowledge that, and he's bringing it out for us. You know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Christian, have you mistaken sanctification in your life 
to mean that you don't sin anymore. Like, really, have you mistaken sanctification to believe that you do not need to repent anymore? Have you mistaken sanctification to mean that you're getting better and better and better? While in a sense you certainly are, what sanctification does for us is it constantly allows us to peer deeper and deeper into our souls. And while at one point as Christians we could confess sins pretty generically, now we can start to go, okay, but why did I do that? Lord, I was kind to my wife, but now I know that I did it for the wrong reasons, and so I need to repent of that. You see, as we grow in grace, as we grow into more who Jesus is, then we realize it's worse than we ever thought it was. But see, this person, this person's able to go, you know, I'm not as bad as my friends. I'm not as bad as the people in my growth group. I'm not as bad as the guys at work, and so I must be fine. Now again, just like I told you I was tempted to hear seminary professors say that there are Christians that believe in perfection, I just completely wrote them off and said nobody believes that. You might have heard so many people in this pulpit get up and say that there are actually members of a PCA church that have somehow forgotten that they're messy and sinful, and you might laugh and be like, he's just trying to make his point. I'm about to go from preaching to meddling and step on your toes, so pick him up a little bit. I think a lot of you in this room are probably in that category and don't even know it. You haven't begun to process the depth of depravity and sin that you haven't even dealt with yet. Why? Because you don't know what's safe. You don't know how you're supposed to think about sin. And so that's kind of the, the second subpoint is who we are. We are in Christ. And so we can be the chief repenters. We are in Christ, and so he's never going to crush us. He's never going to undo his covenant faithfulness because he's found out some new knowledge of how awful we are. That's not the gospel. But we all would rather be Roman Catholics. We all would rather just go to Pastor L and say, Hey, this is the list of sins I'm aware of from this week. Can you prescribe the solution for me? We like dealing like that. Because I can do the solution and move on. Again, I, I never will forget, and it happens all the time at Bellhaven, but you know, a, a student does what students often do on the weekend, and by Monday afternoon they feel sorry for it. And so they come to my office, and it happens less and less, but my first year and a half while people were still getting to know me, it happened a lot. Well, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And they're ready for me to just pounce on them. And my reply is, well, did you repent? You would be amazed how many times the answer is, I never thought about that. What a theological problem. They knew they could. Never thought about that. Oh, so you, don't want me to, you wanted me to come in here and beat you up real good and stir up emotions of guilt and you thought that would fix things. Y'all, I do it too. I don't want to pick on my students. I mean, how many times have I done something that, that's just blatantly, blatantly wrong and I let days go by before I revisit it? This is the problem. Is that we don't believe that God is going to respond to us the way this passage plays out he does. You know, we really, the movie The Sandlot, please tell me you all know and love and have deep affection for the movie The Sandlot. You know, they go through all 
all this trouble, all this trouble to get the ball because the presupposition was the man in that house is mean. We can't go knock on his door and ask him. Well, you know what happens? They get to the end and they walk up. Well, sorry, I've been making all this noise. And the guy goes, well, why didn't you just knock on the door and ask me? I'd have gotten it for you. And they all throw, throw their gloves at the kid that told him he would be mean. <laughs> My friends, if we're not careful, what we're going to find out is that's how we're viewing God this morning. If we're not careful, we're not going to see, verses 7 and 9, we're not going to see that he says, if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're not going to see that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no solution to sin apart from repentance. There is no solution to sin apart from acknowledging that in Christ we have been made new. We are being made new, but the flesh will always remain until Jesus takes us to himself. I don't know why he did it that way. I'm mad at him for it. I would have rather just been perfect on the spot. In heaven, I would be around only other perfect people. But that's not what he did. So I wanted to challenge us, how are you viewing God this morning? Now I want to challenge us, how are you viewing your sin this morning? When folks say, at least when this church would say, that the church is a safe place for sinners, we certainly don't mean it's a safe place for sinners to engage in their activity. What we mean is it's a safe place for sinners to come repent and confess and acknowledge guilt. It's fascinating. You can't make too much of this, but you do have to stop and go, how is it that Jesus really was killed by the church people, but it was the sinners who were so drawn to him? You know, we haven't lived in the Gospels enough. We haven't retraced the steps of our own Lord and Savior enough to see the different responses he had to people and they to him as he went on this earth in his perfection how many times do we have to read the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Or how many times do we have to do the prodigal son to stop and go, wait a minute. It seems that mankind, even those who are in Christ, it seems we simply don't know how to think about our sin. And so we either ignore its presence or we ignore its power. But in neither one of those, we're not repenting. And so we're not killing it. And so it's festering inside of us. And hear me say this. If you're in Jesus, his love is not on a moving scale. You get his perfect love always. But let me say that when we're living in indwelling sin and when we're not repenting and confessing what we've done wrong, then temporally speaking, the gospel's not on our side. You understand that? That we're living in opposition to our own confession of faith and to expect sweet fellowship with God when we're going, I'm not going to stop loving this sin. We are building up walls. And it's painful. And it's hard to live an abundant life, which is what Jesus said he came to do, when we don't repent. 
in, in my opinion, and I might sound like a company man here, but I'm not going to apologize for it. RUF's greatest contribution to the PCA is that we have forced the denomination to stop and go, I don't think we've been biblical about the way we've talked about sin. I think we've created an environment where it's easier to hide. And we said we're not doing it anymore. Your pastor came out of that. You notice. We're not doing it anymore. To be sanctified means we are people who can finally say the truth is worse than I thought it was. Jesus loves me still. You believe that. Because if you don't believe that, then there's going to remain in the depths of your, of your heart sin that you just refuse to deal with. And y'all, it's going to eat at you for no reason other than the fact that you let it. I get it though. There are things that if I said out loud, I'm not sure even my wife would still love me. We all have that. But what I'm telling you is Jesus will never be caught off guard by the worst part of you. It too has been made righteous. And it too is being perfected. But it's hard for us to believe. Because we would rather just put our head in the sand and avoid. So I leave you, Redeemer Church, with this challenge, this exhortation, this encouragement today. Would your hearts, would your homes, would Redeemer Church be a place where it is safer to be vulnerable and truthful about your sin than to hide? In 15 years from now, could you have Alcoholics Anonymous and get rid of the word anonymous? Because the alcoholic is just certain that that's my church. They can love this side of me. In 15 years from now, would anonymous support groups for addicts, would it, could they come in here and get up here and say, this is who I am, and be certain that every one of you would come hug them afterwards? That's how we know we believe about sin what the scripture teaches about sin. Was when, it's, it's when confession and repentance becomes the norm. And when we wouldn't even think about coming in here and hiding and putting forth some version of ourselves that's not true. But only when we know who God is. Only when we unpack what it means that he is light in the world and light for us personally will we do that. But I've got good news for you today. Today's the day you can stop avoiding repentance. And today's the day you can see the beautiful freedom of finally sitting down with your accountability partner, with your spouse, with those closest to you and say, I'm ready to tell you the truth now. It's bad. But Jesus is clinging on to me, and he will never let go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, bless this word, not because it was spoken by me, but bless what is true and right and good. Would the scriptures not return void, but instead find deep roots and soil where Satan can't reach it. Do a work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.